Welcome to episode six of False Neutral, the motorcycle podcast from the Hooniverse Podcast Network. I am your host, Pete. Eric is with me. Garrett will be along in a bit. Don't be surprised to have Garrett show up in the middle of this. And uh, Eric, I'm going to turn this over to you. All right. Before we introduce our guest, uh, who we're actually really, really excited to uh, to have on this week, uh, we should circle back and just any old business we need to touch base on or anything, any feedback from last week's podcast. I will bring up one thing. Jason Connor texted me earlier today and sent me a screenshot of the iTunes automotive category podcast rankings showing us, I think, in... 14th or 15th Top place, 10? we were one ahead of cammed and tubbed. Uh, that was for a matter of hours, and we've already dropped to like 21st, so Jason, you have nothing <laughs> to worry about. Uh, <laughs> but I do want to thank uh, Cager on Two Wheels, linking to our podcast on his Facebook feed. So that's why we had a huge spike in our numbers there for about 24 hours. The other feedback that I got from last week is my good friend Rusty, who we hope to have on the program soon told me he thought our endings were too abrupt, that we needed some kind of outro. So I put together a little something to stick on the end to usher you out. It also includes this motorcycle sound like our intro does, so I'm going to have a little contest. I'm going to see if anybody can name the four motorcycles that you hear. There are three in the beginning and one in our outro, and if you can tell me the type of motorcycle that you hear... In those four little audio clips, uh, I don't know, we'll have to come up with a special prize. But that's my old business. Do you have anything? No, I think I'm, I think I'm good. Um, with that, we'll, uh, we'll bring on this week's guest, and we're very happy to, uh, to have him in. Uh, he is the head of Moto America, which is the motorcycle road race uh, organization here in the United States. Um, they have or in the process of resurrecting from the dead uh, a road racing, motorcycle road racing in America. There's some great uh, people uh, behind this, and we are very happy to have Richard Varner on our show. So, Richard, thanks for joining us. Hey, it's a real pleasure. I've uh, been looking forward to this. So we'll set the, we'll set the table a little bit here for, for Moto America. Eighteen months ago, essentially, Road racing, motorcycle road racing in America was dead. Uh, I'm not going to pull any punch on this one, and I'll let Richard. I'll let you be kind on the Daytona Motorsports Group. The France family had bought or taken over AMA Road Racing in America, and essentially killed it with neglect after promising the sun and the moon and bringing all the powers of NASCAR to it, and they did absolutely nothing. Uh, now, Richard, you were involved with a number of other people, including uh, Wayne Rainey and uh, a couple other people. I'll let you, you know, talk about your whole team there that you brought in. And amazingly, last year, with not a lot of lead-in time, put together a, a pretty decent season to try and get road racing, uh, motorcycle road racing, back to be at least relevant in the United States. Well, thank you. It's uh, as you mentioned, it was a really uh great effort on a, a part of a great number of people. Uh, 18 months ago, we, uh, I say we, I'm talking about uh, the Crave Group, that's K-R-A-V-E, which stands for Cargus, uh, Rainey, Axland, Varner Enterprises. It's also uh, 
a great name for a porn operation, I guess, too, from what I've been told. <laughs> but <laughs> we, you know, we're not that creative, so that's the best we could come up with. Anyway, so we had been looking for a way for quite some time to become involved in road racing and uh, really more pointedly to get U.S. riders back on the world stage. This is something that Wayne and Chuck uh, had really uh, been striving for. And, and again, just for some clarity, our partnership is uh, Terry Cargus, executive director of the Peterson Automotive Museum, which, by the way, you should see sometime. It's spectacular. Wayne Rainey, who needed some introduction, but was three times world champion. Uh, Chuck Axel, who ran Kenny Roberts' team for many years, and is well known around the, the industry, and was also one of the operators at uh, Circuit of the Americas in, in, uh, in Austin, and then myself. And I, I'm uh, kind of the the guy that likes motorcycles and, and uh, uh, has a passion for anything that's mechanical. We, we got together, and we're looking for a way to reintroduce American racing. Well, the opportunity came through the AMA, actually, to obtain uh, the commercial rights to motorcycle road racing. And we jumped at the chance. Uh, we've gotten to know the France family uh, and the DMG organization uh, in this period of time. And I have to tell you, I think uh, there's a, a heck of a lot of, of a bad rap, I think, laid at their feet. DMG uh, and the, the NASCAR organization, everything that, that, that surrounds that, are very professional people. And their undertaking was not one to just to, to let motorcycles go. I think you have to put it in perspective and look at, first of all, uh, motorcycle racing is very different from automobile racing. And you can't argue with an operation that's done uh, as much as NASCAR has and has been successful. And it's, it was a, a logical idea, I think, that you can move that expertise from there to, to motorcycle racing. You also had 2008, and you know, motorcycles fell off, fell off the United States by 30%. And then underneath all this, you have a complete change in the way social media and marketing has, has, has come about. And so all that formed, I think, a, 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 a perfect storm for the industry. And I think that, that was a real problem, and I think that had as much to do with that as, as anything. So personalities get involved in different things, but that being said, uh, we were faced with trying to stand up an operation in the first few months. And the, and the real keys, we felt, were to get on TV and to focus on the racing. And I think that uh, that happened. Uh, I, going down to the last round, the last races in a couple of situations, to crown a champion in different classes, I think we couldn't have asked for anything better. You know, we had uh, the paddock uh, was very supportive. Uh, you know, the, the OEMs that have been there for, for quite some time, uh, uh, Suzuki and Yamaha uh, deserve a lot of credit for sticking with it for all these years. Uh, Honda uh, uh, came back in a in limited way and will be back in a much bigger way this year. Um, uh, KTM with with their their concept of the uh, the youth uh, uh, class, I think have, have all contributed. This year, our process has been to, to focus more on the event itself and to improve the, on, on the television. Uh, the television last year was was something that kind of came together at the last minute. It was very difficult. It's been very difficult this year to get all through the television um, offerings, but we feel like we'll be up live on TV and have something to announce pretty soon. But I think that you'll find that uh, motorcycle racing worldwide is going to start moving forward in a big way. 
you uh, you mentioned the TV, and that was actually TV package, and that's actually like one of the top three or four questions for you. So you're in the process of getting that nailed down for this year. Yeah, it's basically nailed down. It's basically nailed down. I think that the issues though that remain are are contractual and, and very specific to to trying to put something like this together. But I think in general, the the public will be excited uh, to see us. Uh, there's been some rumors I think already out there about about the television and. And I'm not here to, to confirm or deny those at this point in time. I just can't say anything much. But, but other than uh, we feel very positive it will be live. Uh, and I think that uh, when you tune in to see us, you'll see a lot of racing in addition to what we're putting on as well. So one of the things, uh, and you sort of mentioned it when you were talking about DMG and the changing social media landscape, um, really broadcast TV or TV packages in, in many ways have become less relevant, especially in the last five to seven years. Uh, I know because I do some work, uh, I used to I used to report or I used to have a site that covered the U.S. series, but I do some work in Canada. And the young people up there couldn't care less about a TV package. They want to make sure that, uh, they want to see, make it sure that it streams on their phone or on their iPad or on, on a computer. Um, are you guys going to be doing anything uh, either with an app or with some type of, of setup with, uh, with TV partners so that live streaming or at least maybe uh, be able to watch it after the fact on, on some type of mobile devices available? Yes, I think um, the choices are live streaming over the web or uh, over the top, uh, effectively with uh, a connected uh, cable uh, types of presentations. And you will be able to see us, the way things are, are being constructed, you'll be able to see us on Saturday and Sunday. Uh, you'll be able to see uh, through a connected type of device. Uh, and it, it's probably going to look more like a, um, if you're a cable subscriber, you'll be able to uh, just basically uh, go online or use your, use your uh, mobile device to be confirmed as a cable subscriber and be able to see what's uh, CR racing and our practices and our qualifying on Saturday. And then on, on Sunday through direct linear TV, you'll be able, also be able to see our, our live shows. Uh, and again, if you're, if you're a cable subscriber, you'll be able to pick it up on your app. And then our hope is then after a certain period of time, you'll be able to see the race-to-race -race coverage on our uh, website uh, on a delayed basis. I was talking with somebody who writes in the bicycle racing world, and he said the whole idea of having a viewer enthusiast, somebody who's not racing amateur, may not even ride a bicycle at all, but tunes in every July to watch the Tour of France, is something that's only happened in the, like, the last 10 years, and it's really helped the sport. Uh, what do you think the prospects are for that kind of viewer enthusiast as opposed to a participant racer or somebody who is really into motorcycles that, that may be craving that now, is, is there much future prospects for getting new people, or are you truly thinking this is going to remain a very niche thing for people who are already into bikes? Well, that's a good question. I mean, we look at our, our – our, and by the way, it's never been asked before, so that's even makes it a more uh... – Interesting question. So I'll try to muddle through this if I can. Uh, see, I think that, we, of course, like anything, we look at the endemic audience, and that's something like, uh, and that would be motorcycle enthusiasts. It's five to seven million people, I think, nationwide. Um, something of that nature. Then you look at sort of the next ring, concentric ring out there, which are 
people that like the lifestyle, then you have just the pure non-endemic viewer. And the, the way that we would hope to attract that person is through effectively the um, social side. Uh, and that seems to be the best approach to that because we can saturate that part of the, of the uh, potential audience uh, and, and, and work it as a lifestyle as opposed to a, um, a, a true interest. It's, it's very imprecise in the way it works, and it takes a lot of saturation, as you all probably know. Uh, we've, we have a group called Con Media that uh, is very active in, in working with associated types of things. So, I mean, if, if you're a person that never sees motorcycles, you're probably not going to be as easily persuaded. But, you know, if you're a guy that builds his own cars, or if you're a guy that, that likes uh, hot rods, or you're a guy that likes car racing, our hope is to try to, to grab those people next, I think. Uh, to that end, we've been trying to approach uh, car racing teams to get them involved in motorcycle racing and get some carryover. We've looked at trying to do combination events where we have something like uh, uh, Global Rallycross in addition to what we're doing. We've, we've thought about working with Indy Racing uh, to see if we could uh, occupy tracks on the same weekend. So there's a number of ongoing conversations that way. Um, you know, we've uh, at, at the Circuit of the Americas this year, uh, for the MotoGP round, you're going to have MotoGP, you're going to have Moto America, and you're also going to have AMA Flat Track there. And uh, people that have never been around that before, um, there's nothing that will hook you quicker than Flat Track. I mean, that's the most amazing form of racing, I think, uh, next to road racing. So I think we're trying to broaden that. We're also trying to broaden the, the event at the track. We love having campers out, and so we're doing bands, and we're doing... Um, uh, uh, activities for kids and mini moto, which is extremely fun to watch as a family. So we're trying to trying to really make this a family friendly thing too. And lastly, the demographic is changing pretty dramatically. We know that from the Motorcycle Industry Council that the demographic is really starting to trend younger. It's more diverse. It's more female uh, uh, populated. Uh, it's more minority populated. So I think that we have some opportunities here. Um, there's nothing that's going to one thing that's going to work, I think it's going to have to be a combination of all of the above, and it's going to have to be driven by the events, it's going to have to be driven by our social media, and then I think, too, we just have a changing, um, a changing demographic. Well, I know when I was, you know, back in the 70s, what got me interested in cars was uh, Bartle used to have a Saturday morning or Saturday afternoon product uh, program that they sponsored called The Racers that Johnny Rutherford hosted that was profiles of different racing, including motorcycle racing. And then about the same time, the Superbikers on Wide World of Sports. That, That's right. that hooked me pretty much for life. And when it came time to to look for a hobby as a teenager, I was already primed because of that kind of exposure. Um, that was also the heyday of, of uh, Evil Knievel jumping over the fountain at Caesar's Palace. So uh, I don't know if television is necessarily the vehicle to do that. You know, it could be YouTube. It could be, you know, some of the social media stuff that people are, are doing nowadays. But uh, it, it only takes a couple of those real high-profile exposures to hook somebody because it is a fantastic sport. What's visual related? I mean, the visually related uh, uh, is the is the major push on this. And this, we've added people in, in house to do videos and to cut videos because the the requirement is to saturate the the the, the social media sites and the airways. I mean, you, there's nothing more exciting than seeing these guys uh, cranked over in a turn and a, drill, a, dry, a drag an elbow or a knee 
And, and then you see him doing it in the wet, which is incredible. I mean, a couple of wet races uh, done properly uh, will we'll, we'll just lock you in as well because you can't believe these guys are out there. And then if you can just get them to one event, it takes off. I mean, you go to the event and you see these guys there. It's like men on missiles out there, and it's, it's the most incredible experience once you get out there and actually see it. Uh, and I think that's also what hooks, what hooks the crowd. Yeah, you, uh, if you go on YouTube and you look at some of the most viewed racing, motorcycle racing videos, there's a couple that stick out. Um, one is from BSB back in, I want to say, 2008 or nine. It's Renichi uh, Kianari. Renichi Kianari. Anyways, uh, he was riding for Tenkate at the time and he's on a qualifying lap in Donington. And it's, he's just like sideways the whole time and it's yeah. beautiful to watch. And then, um, the Keo slideshow, it was known as. Uh, and then the other one, I think was, Either Red Bull or MotoGP did it last year, and it was a it was a super slow mo at you know thousand frames a second. Watching Marquez come through a corner, drift, dragging his shoulder, yeah, and it just yeah. When you see that, it's it's hard to describe someone like it's a two hundred seventy horsepower bike. It's three hundred pounds, three hundred and forty pounds contact size of a credit card, you know, and a sixty two degree lean angle that just doesn't compute for people until you see it in slow-mo, and then they kind of go, my God. Well, yeah, you know, I, was I, at, I, I was at the, uh, the Monterey Historics last year, Well, and which is just after our round at, at the Gunaseca. And they had a bunch of old uh, F1 cars going around the track, and, uh, you know, understandably they're driven by, by uh, highly uh, qualified amateurs, but, you know, Formula One around, around the Gunaseca, you go, man, that's kind of cool. It, it, it was boring compared to a motorcycle. Bikes are so much quicker, and 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 the other thing about motorcycle racing, well, there's two things really, well, three things. First of all, the rider is so much more of the formula than in car racing. The rider is probably fifty percent. Uh, in car racing, yeah, we can argue about it, but it's arguably less. It could be eighty percent is is machine and twenty percent driver. You could say five or ten percent. It depends, but but it certainly is far. The driver is far less a component in car racing than motorcycles. The second thing is that you can see every element on a motorcycle. You can see the suspension. You can see the engine pretty much. I mean, it depends on the fairing, of course. You can see the rear wheel working and the powertrain working. All, and you can see the hand controls. You can see everything that's going with it. So motorcycles are all very visual and very involved. And uh, the last thing is that you can cheer for a brand still. Almost any... Any type of racing a day, the cars, in cars especially, they have no relationship to, to what I drive. You can't tell one race car from the other. You, you can't tell a, a Ford from a Chevy. But, you know, bikes, you can still see the bike you ride or the brand that you ride on that you can cheer for. So I think those things alone are really going to be something that if we can underpin those and underscore those issues, people are going to come to appreciate uh, the racing a lot better. I absolutely agree with you, and I just wanted to uh, add one thing, well, two things. that, And, like, F1, if you look at those, for example, F1 cars, um, there are only a few engine manufacturers, just, and, and even, like, the automotive manufacturers are really just a label on the car, whereas in bike racing, you still see, like, you have Ducati and you have Yamaha and Suzuki, and you can still see and distinguish all of the different manufacturers from each other. Um, but I was going to ask you what you thought about 
writer aides and how you thought that that changes the percentage of the writer's input in the motorcycle. Because nowadays with things like traction control and wheelie control and ABS and all of these writer aids, do you think that that allows um, writers to go faster? Or do you think that um, even without those aids, the writers would still be able to ride at that level? Well, it's a lot in that question. I think uh, traction control is, is a general statement. Uh, traction control and electronics on motorcycles are there to make the, the motorcycles more capable. I mean, it's it's a lot like a fighter airplane. You know, the more unstable they are, the the, uh, the, the more capable they are in a certain way, and it takes a computer to, uh, to aid you in flying it. It's a little bit the same with the motorcycle, but you never get past the fact that the, the, the feel is, uh, of the motorcycle is best determined uh, through the seat of the pants. I think if you talk to, to Roger Hayden or you talk to some of the other riders, they'll tell you that, that they like the, they fight the electronics as much as they fight the motorcycle sometimes. Yeah. And it's very difficult to, to get it right because it, it's just not always going to be right. And, and think about it, if you're programming a bike or the electronics, you're trying to anticipate anything that could happen. Yeah, and that's you probably, know what you can't you can't anticipate everything. So the, the, the rider still has a big piece of this. It's probably especially true when riding on the rain. Sometimes you need to feel it slip and slide a little bit to know what that breaking point is. Mm-hmm. And with the rider controls, traction controls, and those other things, it can help reduce that feeling of of where that traction edge is. And so you can't really tell where to push it. And I know that I've had that experience with riding in the rain with some. Uh, computer aids, um, you lose a little bit of confidence in how the motorcycle is going to predict in really poor conditions because you just can't quite feel where it's at. You're almost relying on that traction control to to fix something for you, um, and you might get to a point where it can't, and you've already kind of gone past that edge. So probably right in the rain, those things help a lot too. Yeah, and you know, then the question is, to, now do electronics... Um Lengthen the the career of a, of a rider. I mean, that's, I mean, when you mention that, yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. I mean, certainly, it has a leveling effect in some respects. Sure. So, so I think that's that's certainly a, a probably somewhat of a factor. But is it appreciable? I don't know. I I, I don't really have a good feel for that. Yeah. I think it makes it makes certain riders smoother riders. But you know, you can. It doesn't really matter. You can still go out there, and and I can pick out. I, if you just if you took off all the the colors, you could tell. Watching on board, you could tell Jake Lewis from Roger Hayden from from uh, Josh Hayes from Cam Bouvier. They all look, they all ride differently, uh, and you you know you watch how they 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 move on the bike. It's all different, and that's a great thing. I mean, people can follow that. And that's that's what really gets me excited about what we're doing. Is that you can cheer for the bike, you can cheer for the make, you can cheer for the rider. Uh, you know, you can cheer for the team, and I think there's just so many different ways to to get behind what's going on out there. I mean, even if you look at some of the social media, people are already anticipating new rollouts of motorcycles in the coming years by the OEM. So yeah. this year, everyone's looking for the 17 uh, Suzuki, or they're looking next year. Oh, gee whiz, don't worry, we're gonna be we're gonna be back, and we're gonna be kicking the rears because Honda's gonna be back, and we're gonna have this bike. But but think about that. You don't hear that so much about. Chevrolet, and you'll hear it about Ford. If I can step back a little bit, because some of our listeners may not be that familiar, uh, talk a little bit about the machines these guys are racing, what the classes are. Now, these are all Supersport or production uh, Superbikes. 
so they do have a, a, a relationship to production uh, mass-produced motorcycles, uh, unlike you know NASCAR, which is a, a, a shell over a tube frame, or Formula One, or even um, if you look at uh, uh, Moto2, the 600cc class and the GP, uh, those are all, you know, I, I kind of checked out a racing when they went to spec engines, when everybody had yeah. to use the Honda engine. Uh, some of it is I'm a gearhead. I love, some of my favorite racing was watching very different machines go up against each other. Uh, one of my favorite seasons was 1983, where Freddie Spencer had a really light, super nice handling, underpowered machine. Kenny Roberts had a machine that was a whole lot more powerful, but but didn't handle as well and was a little bit more cumbersome. And watching the two of them that had totally different styles as riders on motorcycles that were totally different style bikes uh, was just fascinating to me. Yeah, but competing with each other, too. Right. Yeah, and and that was a high watermark, but I'm digressing here. Why don't you talk a little bit about what are the classes that these guys are racing in, and a little bit about how the machines are prepared, so so we can give people an idea of that might not be familiar. Right. Well, all the all the motorcycles that we race in the Moto America Championship are production based motorcycles. So, uh, but they kind of go along two parallel paths. One is almost a pure production machine. And the other one is a modified for racing only machine. So when we look at the, so we have a, uh, the, the, the bottom of the rung is the KTM 390 Cup, RC 390 Cup. Um, these are all specified, uh, specific motorcycles, 390cc single cylinder motorcycles uh, that are basically bone stock. They, they can change, I believe that there's, a, there's an opportunity to change springs a little bit, they can change tire pressures. But it's pretty well stocked uh, in every respect, and that's only for uh, uh, participants that are 14 to 22 years of age. Um, and it's a uh, it's kind of a family event. It's really become uh, for a lot of us one of the favorite uh, parts of the event is watching the 390 racers get out there. They they race very closely together. It's about developing their their racecraft. They learn to draft uh, lead changes, you know, three or four times a lap. Uh, young guys. Uh, very emotional, and so the racing comes up to being just about anybody's game almost any weekend. Yeah. The 600 classes are two of one is the Super Stock 600 and one is the Super Sports 600. The Super Stock 600 is basically a 600cc motorcycle that is stock. Uh, it is raced on DOT legal tires. Um, yeah, they're provided by Dunlop, who are spec, is our spec tire provider. And it's basically a stock motorcycle. There's there's some differences in years from year to year, so there's there's some things that can be changed. But for the most part, they're stock with stock uh, uh, electronics, and, and uh, it's been a popular class. It's the least expensive class of the larger machines to race, and uh, it's much like you'd see a lot of club racers race uh, on the weekends as well. The Super Sport 600s are race-specific motorcycles. They have, they race on slick tires. That was a change that we brought in. Uh, they have some latitude electronics and suspension. Uh, and between that and, say, a pure um, purpose-built racer, they're probably 85% to 90% of what a purpose-built racer would be. Uh, but again, they, uh, they are specific to the brands, and they're not a spec class with a spec engine. It's just, 
is a stock-based motorcycle. So, so when you're looking at a motorcycle, it's actually the production, uh, at least uh, cylinder, engine cases, frame, those things are the same as what you're going to see when you go down to your dealership and you look at a motorcycle that uh, somebody can go out and put their money down to buy. That's correct. And you're, you're going to see, I mean, they, I think we give them the head and we give them um, a few other things, but, but you're not going to be able to see a whole lot of it. But it's pretty much what you're going to get coming out of the uh, the uh, the dealers the stock bike absolutely is going to be the same, but the, the super sport bike is going to be uh, more heavily modified. The next class up is a super stock 1000 class, which again are basically stock motorcycles. Uh, there's again some latitude in, in springs and, and links and that sort of thing, and electronics, but very very minimal. It is basically a stock motorcycle, and I got to tell you those things are the most incredible pieces of equipment I've seen. I mean, they can lap uh, in the, with the right rider within a second or second and a half of the superbike. It's a, it's incredible what is coming out of the OEMs today and, and what can go directly to the track. Now we take the, they take lights off and so they cut weight and that sort of thing. And anything that's not essential can be taken off the bike. You know, so turn signals, lights, that sort of thing. Um, then looking at the uh, superbike class. Again, that's very similar to the Super Sport 600, but it's it's for 1,000 cc motorcycles. Uh, electronics are open, are pretty open, much open. The uh, they race on slick tires. Um, there are uh, changes to the head, changes to the fork, brakes, that sort of thing. Because the bikes are more capable, they need bigger brakes, to say, and those are pretty well opened up. So it's a it's a much much more heavily modified motorcycle. But again. It's just like any type of racing organization that, that the first 20% of what you do to a bike or any car will yield the greatest results, but you have to keep spending money, unfortunately. But doing more and more and more, you only get tenths of a second out of it. It's, it's all, it's, it gets to be a diminishing return after a while. So, so these bikes are, are awfully capable. It's, it's a, it's an interesting process to watch how people develop motorcycles as well. And it's as much about setup as it is the bike itself. I mean, that's what I, keep noticing we go to test and the bikes are, are are very 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 close it's the setup i remember josh day last year uh, with the with uh, twig trig uh, westby's team he's having troubles all year round he just changed they finally just started changing the air pressures uh, and increasing air pressures on his, on his bike changed the season around i mean it went from from sort of being mid-packed up in the front all because of air pressure and it's just that simple sometimes of a, of a solution yeah, setup will make a huge difference. I know that. Yeah. So let me uh, let me circle back to the to the KTM uh, series, and and I really like the fact that you guys have made that uh, a core part of the series and developing young riders. Um, that's again spending a lot of time up in Canada with their national series. Um, one of the things they've done well is build a a really good stepping stone block where you got them in at fourteen racing on a CBR one twenty five or two fifty and now they've got uh, uh, Stacy uh, Nesbitt going to Europe to race in, uh, you know, in the European Cup, and right. you know, a few other races come up. Um, well, we have Brad North. Um, we have Brad. We have Brad North come down from Canada this last year and raced 390 with us. And now he's uh, yeah, what he's in uh, moto. Uh, is in Grand Prix racing, I think. Yeah. Yeah, and. Uh, Cormac was another one who kind of came up through that. Anyway, so I'm glad that you guys are making that part of a, a core uh, core part of the organization. 
Um, when the rules came out, and I understand why you're age limiting it, because you want to push people up in class. You don't want some of the people who are racing in super or super sport to kind of come and poach. And maybe it's only another 12 to 16 other people who would race, but have you considered adding sort of a senior class into that and say you have to be over 40, you know, up to 21 or over 40? And, and I look at it from two, two ways. One, there's a lot of guys who still want to race who know they're either don't want to race on a big bike, can't afford it, but still want to race at some kind of national level. Um, the other one is there's an opportunity, I think, for some older racers to help mentor some of the younger racers or maybe pair up. You could have a team up young versus old and one mentor another or whatever, something like that. Is that? Yeah, but it's manifested a little bit differently. These are single-cylinder motorcycles, and they get to be pretty underpowered, I think, overall. They're great for developing a younger uh, talent that's lighter, uh, that's not quite as old. But you start looking at, at the larger, larger riders that get old. You know, they get older, they get a little larger. You know, and and by the way, when you get to be my age, you get a lot larger in the wrong place too. But, but the, <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm uh, I'm uh, forty some odd pounds over what my race weight was fifteen years ago. So yeah, I, I, I understand. I understand. Completely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I understand. Yeah. So the. Uh, so we get into that issue, but it's a professional series, and and the and the, the, the person you describe is going to be someone that's wanting to to race as much for the love of racing as anything, and that's it becomes more like a club uh, a club atmosphere. I mean, a club racing type of an approach. But having said that, we've talked a lot about just as just as a as a as an idea, and it's it's not developed yet. But the six hundred superstock class. Is a class that is uh, fairly easy to get into. Uh, the bikes are, are much like the club racing bikes, uh, and it's also the least expensive of all the, the things we do. And maybe we thought about somehow maybe uh, creating an east-west championship that that also races for a natural national championship, but be more of a pro-am entry-level type of an approach, where if you're you know, sixteen, seventeen, and you want to race that, and you can, you can, you can come along that way too. So, if you're showing promise as a fourteen or fifteen year old, you jump in and and you race ten rounds on the West Coast, and then you race a few national races, uh, and you you get a lot of practice and you get a lot of uh, opportunities that way. That might work better because the bike's a little bit bigger, it has a little more capability, and more uh, opportunities for setup changes and that sort of thing. And we've given that a lot of thought. We've and we could do that probably easier because we just can't race the big bikes, the thousand cc bikes on certain tracks where you could race these six hundreds safely. The other issue we get into, we get a lot of people wanting us to go to Mid Ohio and go racing there in different places. But for us to be able to put this on TV and to do the things we do, we have to be able to race in any kind of weather effectively. Yeah. And some of these tracks just aren't really capable of handling motorcycles safely if they're at their uh, if it's raining. So we have to be very specific about that. We would love to be able to add tracks on the, on the western part of the United States uh, and are continuing to talk to tracks about changing their setups and what they could do to, to accommodate what we're doing. But that right now is one of our biggest uh, hurdles is trying to get qualified uh, venues to, to race with. Yeah. And uh, we'd, yeah. like I said, we'd, we'd love to be out here on the west coast. And you know, I, I think you can look for us to probably be there next year, but uh, it's it's we're taking a long run at trying to get these tracks to to uh, upgrade in certain places. Hey Eric, I just so, wanted to uh, say yeah. that I really like your idea of adding a 
<clears throat> a class right for the older individuals because I know that the 600cc bikes is not a big step up in CC displacement, but it is a huge step up in power and capability and having a smaller class for people that maybe don't have a lot of track time like the 390, even though it is a little bit underpowered, but for people that would like to get into the racing um, that don't meet that age criteria, I think it would be a great bike. That's one of the reasons why I was really excited for the 450 GPs that never materialized to come out, which was the motocross bike basically converted with a radial mount fork, um, converted into a road race bike. And I was looking forward to that class to come out because I thought that it would have uh, a good... Uh, base for riders to get into road racing without stepping up to some of those bigger classes. But I just wanted to say that I really liked your idea for kind of the dual class for the 390s. Yeah. Yeah, was that the, was that the I, one I mean, uh, Gavin Tripp was trying to promote it one time? Yeah, so yeah, it's basically the 450. Yeah, the motocross bike um, just converted into what is really the 390 now. The 390 just basically KTM made a dedicated version of what was looking like uh, the 450 class was going to be, but KTM just kind of um, yeah. factory back. Yeah, a lot of people were slotting. Yeah, we've, we've looked at, actually, we've looked at that bike. Uh, in fact, I've got two uh, two bikes in my, my shop right now. And the one thing we thought about it, too, was to, to get people involved in, in racing. You know, you can ride a, a dirt bike before you have a, a driver's license. Yeah, absolutely. And, and these kids, they, if they have a dirt bike, and there's a billion of them out there, they could ride them. They used to ride them, but you know they're not that far as you mentioned, Garrett, from being maybe a decent road racer. So there's right. a group in, in Spain called Beyond that does a that does a kit that, that uh, yeah. we actually ordered one in and bought it in and, and had it set up and had some people ride it. And then we also uh, Sandy Rainey, uh, rest in peace. He uh, he built a uh, he took another one and built a flat track around it. Yeah. Okay. And, and so so we're looking. We've been looking at kind of the. The ability to for a young person maybe or, or to economically begin to road racing by not having to go buy new equipment. Yeah, I believe that they're in Spain. That's if right. I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and and, and, and the price of their kit is it's a little bit steep. I think it's like three thousand or thirty five hundred euro, maybe like four thousand US. But that comes with a wheel set, forks, brakes. Um, basically everything you need. And what's great about that company is they make them for every manufacturer. There's Suzuki, Yamaha, KTM, uh, Kawasaki. You can really retrofit any motocross bike into a really capable road racer. And and I don't know if there is a class that somebody could race that in, if there's maybe some sort of, or even if it's just a track day, I suppose somebody could use one of those motorcycles. But, but that's, yeah. that's more of, that's tailored more toward a, a club or an amateur racer than the pro level, yeah. isn't it? I mean, if you're going to compete um, yeah. on the pro level... Well, yeah, I mean, the, the motorcycles were intended to be everything that the KTM 390 is right now. It just never materialized. So now that the KTM 390 is out, you it would probably be catered to, yeah, just an amateur club level track day event. But it was going to be what the 390 is now, and it was really supposed to bridge that gap between the smaller displacement bikes, the 125s and 250s, to the 600s, because there is such a big gap there. Um, the 390 came in and filled it, but it was supposed to be the 450 GPs. On, yeah. on, on the other hand, you know, the, the Supermoto has, has been, which is basically, a, you know, a dirt bike with, 
with yeah. slick tires has been I, has been so popular and so popular with the younger demographic. You know, the, right. the X Games crowd. Well, really- yeah, you're talking to me right now. <laughs> I have a CRF450 Supermoto, um, and I love it. It's such a fun bike to ride around the city on, but I'm 29, and, and that's just kind of where I feel like my generation is at. Well, it's it's a multi-purpose bike too. I mean, and and then and it is a, a little more. I mean, no one likes to ride a stock anything, you know. Really, I mean, uh, the uh, and for me, my, my personal preference in terms of styling is I like I like bikes that look like street trackers or or uh, uh, you know we built a couple of them. But the, going back to the idea of Moto America putting on this, and you mentioned it, Peter. I think is a good point. And this is a professional series. And we're looking to groom riders to go forward. We do feel that there's a there's a very strong place for us to support the clubs in finding entry level riders. But uh, yeah, and this sounds a little bit harsh, but you know if you're if you're 30 and wanting to race a 390, it's probably better in a club setting than it is trying to do that in a professional setting, because there's no no place for you to go professionally, um, really. You know, and we're trying to get these younger kids in and get them groomed in racing. And that seems to be a younger and younger thing every year. Um, and, and, here, and here's the other thing about, we talked about this too, revitalizing racing. It's a heck of a lot easier for a 25 or a 30-year-old person to, to become, um, I think, uh, conversant or, or, or whatever I want to say, uh, connected to an 18 to 20-year-old rider than it is to, to become connected to a, a 40-year-old a uh, car driver or uh, a Formula One driver, and I think for the growth of the sport too, there ought to be from a professional side. Uh, just to hear me about the professional side, uh, it's probably better to keep that as a younger uh, uh, program. Yeah, fair enough. I did. I uh, from back in the day in covering the series and having friends uh, uh, back when 250s were still around. That was a place for those people to. To race and you know, but that's a whole that's a bygone era. So um, going back to you, I'll, I'll tell you one thing about the older riders too. We so we still get some. We've got some riders in the super stock and even in the, in the super bike riders that are some are getting late in their forties. You, you, they're not household names, believe me, and they're usually at the back of the grid. Before every race, I usually go by and, and, and wish each rider luck. And you know, at the front of the grid, you're saying you're used to you know, hey, Josh have a good good race. You know, uh, Roger, let's get this one, you know, back and forth. By the time you get back to the back of the grid, you got guys with ponches back there, a little older. You're just saying, hey, dude, just be safe, okay? Just just take it easy <laughs> yeah. and get through the race. But, you know, give them credit for being out there and having a good time. Yeah, no, I was looking at some of the testing from Coda, and I see, you know, people like Steve Rapp and uh, a few other people I remember, and it's just like, wow, those guys are still... Still going at it. Well, Steve's in great shape. So, well, Steve and Mark Heckles Heckles is another one too that was uh, that was on Yamaha last year. uh, The group out of New York, but uh, yes, Steve's got he's on that BMW. He's you know I like that bike. That bike's got some real potential. Uh, You were talking about mentoring or having a seniors class before and talking about this. One thing that I really enjoyed. Uh, BMW used to sponsor the what do they call it legends that they had some of the older semi-retired riders come out and race and from my impression I I didn't see them race live but my impression was the racing was very uneven 
there were usually at least two or three guys at the front that were really the competitive fires burned as as hot as they ever had, and there was some really tight racing up at the front, but then you kind of had a long trail of, of riders behind them. But it was still cool just to see those guys out on the track, the names that you knew. Yeah. Well, you know, this is the 40th anniversary of the Superbike. There's a lot to, to that. I mean, if you look at the old R90S BMW, it was one of the first real superbikes. You know, Rich Pinmore, when, I think he won the first uh, year or two of the superbikes on one. That bike re-engineered BMW on the motorcycle side. I mean, it was a stodgy old cruising bike until until they came out with that hot-looking R90S with the smoked uh, bikini fairing and all that sort of thing. It was really, I, I remember that like it was yesterday. Yeah, that's... Um yeah, some, those were good-looking bikes, and in the, in yeah. the, it's still good today. Beautiful um, bikes. I want to circle. I want to circle back to you uh, a couple things you mentioned about tracks and, and rain and stuff like that. Uh, Mid Ohio being one, I had that on my list, uh, and I had forgotten how bad that track. And so you said, "I'm like, oh yeah, that's why, because the track is. It's okay if it's damp, but if it really starts to rain, that it just it's it's a sheet of ice out there, or at least for for part of it. And uh, so would Sears uh, Sears uh, Point. Following the same thing because of the front straight being part of the drag strip and the traction compound, is that kind of falls? There is a little area? bit of that at one at one end. They have to cross it, and we've talked about that. And you know, part of that solution might be it doesn't rain up there, except in certain times of the years. Um, it rained on us a lot last year, by the way, and, and it rained on us, believe it or not, at uh, in the middle of the drought in Laguna Seca, if you can believe that. But uh, uh, so it's going to rain on us no matter where because it seems like sometimes. But Sonoma is one of those places I think that we would really uh, enjoy going back to. And I think you know we're going to try to make some uh, efforts to make that one happen because the the issue there on the on the, the drag strip is what's there. It's we've got to really do some work and uh, do some homework on on if it's really uh, impactful or not. So I think that's one of the places. But you know you look at there you look at. Uh, um, you know, a lot of people ask about Daytona, and there's no. two two issues no. about, Day, about Daytona. It's, it's a 200 mile race, and it costs a lot for the teams to go to that race because they have to have fueling rigs that are different. They have to have bigger tanks, and you know, after you run a motorcycle for 200 miles, it's it's you've worn the damn thing out. I mean, it's yeah. a, it's expensive for a team to go, and. Uh, you know, it would seem like there might be a, a, a place and a time if, if we can get the sprint racing up that someone might want to come through and do some sort of an endurance series. You know, where you do you do there and you do like uh, Auto Club out here or you do uh, maybe Indy or do something that has, you know, some element of high banking and has a, has a little bit different uh, approach to it. Uh, I think that might have an interest at some point. You know, Suzuka, the ADAR is there and some of the other places. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, maybe that deserves its own uh, its own circuit at some point in time. Yeah, I, I have an idea for you, for you on that, but uh, we'll take that offline. Just it's a, that's an involved conversation. Um, okay. But there is a model for that in a car series that I think would could could potentially work. So yeah. where it's mostly sprint series, but they do have a few endurance rounds. So anyway, right. and, and let me say that's another thing about increasing the number of rounds and different things we do and how we run. We have to be. We have to realize too. It's not just us trying to get through this and, and make a success out of the series as a series and as a business. But yeah, a lot of teams that are they also have limited budgets, and they all want to do it right. But if you, we start adding too many rounds in this, we can out. We can get 
to get them to the point where they can't afford to race with us. So it's it's always a delicate balance. It's almost like we have to build this, build up the series a little bit, get everybody healthy, let it, let everybody kind of get their feet under, and then make make the next move again to say, okay, now we're going to go to ten rounds, or we're going to go eleven rounds, yeah. or we're going to go up to Canada, or we're going to go to Mexico. But if we start trying to do all those things all at one time, we end up yeah. hurting the teams as much as anything, and and we have to be careful about that. Yeah, I noticed you have the. There's one thing that had is there's a pretty big hole in the schedule come you know from between mid July into into September and yeah you know, like you said it's only so much you can do plus you've got to book tracks and that's a I know from back in the day that's a, that's a whole its own whole nightmare but um, going into helping teams um, are you or do you have plans to maybe have a a, a part of the organization help generate sponsors for some of the teams in the sense of you have a larger, you may have a, you can have a staff where a small team maybe can't that would go looking for sponsorship and maybe help combine certain sponsors with certain teams. Even if that means that the series takes a minor cut of that, that money, at least teams are getting sponsorship money and you can bring whether even maybe non-automotive brands into the series that way. What we do try to do with them is, is work with them uh, on a number of levels. Uh, first of all, video, because, uh, they, through their own social media sites, need video. Video draws viewers in on social media. It's inescapable. You have to have video on some levels. So we provide video to certain uh, to teams that they have certain uh, 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 what we call entry levels. We have different levels of entries, and we provide some video to that. Second thing we do is provide them with the with the lowdown each each week of about how their sponsors are being. Um, viewed, so we'll give them all the the, the uh, key performance indicators and the cost per thousands of uh, for advertising purposes. So we try to give them as much information as we can. Then we also will um, uh, work with them on VIP experiences for some of their their uh, vendors or their certain sponsors at the track, so they can entertain and and, and make a little bit bigger splash and. If we can, we'll go with them. Uh, we help them with decks uh, for uh, going to sponsors. Um, we've joined Mars Like Industry Council to help them. So there's, it's, it's a collaborative effort. Uh, we also will, will repost some of their, their uh, social media things. Uh, anything we can do to, to help a rider become better known, help a team get along, we will. Uh, we try to stay away from their sponsors. They try to stay away from ours. However, by going on live TV... We think there's, there'll be an opportunity now to get non-endemic sponsors. So you might see somebody sponsor a watch, I mean, a watch sponsor come on a team or Cologne or something like that where they wouldn't if it wasn't live TV. But they want our demographic, so they'll come to it. Before, it was just pickups and, and uh, uh, tires and OEMs. But I think going on live TV is going to make a big difference for them. Yeah, sounds um, like a lot's being so done for young writers. We're helpfully. I mean, it, so, it's, it, it, it's a symbiotic thing. I mean, the better they race, the better it is for us. Uh, I mean, yeah. if you, one of the biggest things that, that underlies this is trying to get the rules consistent across the, the uh, around the world for superbikes and for the stock racing and yeah. get the classes aligned. And I, I mean, the very first week, uh, Don Sakakura at uh, uh, Yoshimura told us that it only made a big change in his budget because, and Suzuki's budget. Because they could they could do R and D now that would would sustain them in the BSB and World Superbike 
and Moto America and almost any other, uh, because our, our rules were now the same. And we didn't have a special bike that had to race in the United States under separate rules. And therefore, the, the, the R&D could be collaborative across the world. It, was, yeah. it made a big difference in what they were doing. No, you make a really good point, and that's something I think people have been calling for for a long time that's finally happened is a, a homologation of rules, of national series rules, uh, you know, yeah. across the world. And even 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 that they're not that far off of World Superbike, so it's not that big of a deal if you want to run as a wild card or something like that. So, Let me ask you guys a question real quick. You know, we had um, uh, Tony Elias from, uh, that came over uh, that raced with us, or was at the test, race for, uh, to take Jake's place, Jake Lewis, who's, who's unfortunately had been injured. He was very quick at the very beginning. How do you all, how would you all, how do you all view the uh, foreign riders coming into the Moto America series? Do you view that as a positive, or, or how do you view that? If I can speak to that, uh, I, I think it in, it is entirely how they get treated by the media. In FIM Grand Prix, when the Americans were and I think the same thing I referenced the Tour de France earlier. When you've got American names, the media eats them up because they're accessible. They can interview them easily. They speak the language well. It's easy to do on-camera interviews. It's easy to pronounce their names. Uh, it's easy to tell their backstory because they're you know from someplace in the States. I think viewers will accept them. If they're not just going to be another hard-to-pronounce name, I think it's, it's 100% how the media handles them. Yeah, I agree with Pete on that one. I started thinking of car racing. You know, you know Helio Castro Davis. We, we got to get one on Dancing with the Stars, I guess. I <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for for me, um, international riders legitimize the series even more. Um, okay. You get people coming from you know picking up and moving to run to, to and run in another country. I mean, you know, even if it's only for a few few rounds. But I you know back again back in the day, the heyday at the peak is like say two thousand one, two thousand two. And I'm not talking all the Aussie racers, but you had like Giovanni Busai, who okay, he was a marginal racer, but still you had him, uh, Andy Mecklau, who actually had won the Austrian, you know, he had won World Superbike races and a couple Austrian uh, World Superbike. I mean, you had a, a bunch of people, and um, yeah, to me, it's 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 great, and and the fact that a lot of them actually can have a personality, um, which as you know, when it comes to an entertainment factor. You, and, and we've seen in MotoGP for you know 15 and now 20 years with, with Valentino Rossi. Uh, it's amazing what one or two really big personalities, or even if it's a even if one's a really good personality and the other they don't get along, but there's some tension between the two that can make all the difference in the world for keeping and drawing um, interest in in a, in a series. Yeah, that'll make a big difference. I have to say, my two favorite racers of all time are Ant and Mag and uh, Giacomo Agostini. So, <laughs> yeah, I, you know he's good, he's he's good enough looking out, Miriam. You know he's 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 a, he's 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 a real a real personality, and he's and he's a you know he's 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 got the look. You know? Yeah, exactly. So, first round of uh, the 2016 series kicks off in just a, a few days at uh, Coda. So, why don't you talk about that? And what the well, 16 series is looking like. Coda. Uh, if you haven't been to Circuit of the Americas, it deserves a visit. It's um, it's a beautiful place. It's well laid out. It's convenient to Austin and to the airport. And it's got a, it's a, it's a good viewing track. I mean, if you get in the back part of it, there's a number of turns back there that, that there's, if you sit in the stands, you can see several turns, a lot of technical 
uh, action. A lot of fun. They have a big tower there. They also have a big vendor area. And Austin is a great place. So the venue is great. The second thing that will happen there is we have MotoGP. And I love Moto America to death. MotoGP is just another level above it. And uh, you, can't, you can't escape that. You also see there, interestingly enough, a real juxtaposition in terms of the way Europeans race and the way Americans race. Americans are much more um, uh, accessible. You can walk through our, our paddock and our pits. You can talk to the riders. You can watch them working on the equipment. The Europeans are all sequestered in their in their garages, and that's the way it is, and that's the way it is, and that lends a mystique to it as well. The bikes are, are very capable, as you know, and, and, and very exotic. Then you're going to have flat track there, too, and that's there's nothing more American than flat track racing. Right. So I think from, from that standpoint, the weekend is going to be just a hell of a lot of fun, and it's going to be a great for, for families as well. This time of year is a nice nice time in Austin. There's the handmade show the night before uh, on Saturday night. There are custom bikes. I've been going to it for the last few years. Really some interesting motorcycles and, and concepts there and, and kind of a scene that goes with that. So, I, I mean, you look at that and you say, Coda, there's probably no better way to kick off a season with MotoGP, flat track racing, great town, uh, and all those things add up. You know, after that we go to Road Atlanta and uh, Road Atlanta's got a long history of motorcycle racing. Uh, we Our sales, our ticket sales are so exciting. They're already up 30 to 50% across the board in almost every venue. Uh, we've really been pushing the, the, the marketing and, and the and the pre-sales and that sort of thing. Um, you know, if we've been pushing with the OEMs to to um, uh, uh, sponsor more, and Suzuki's going to be sponsoring that event for the Suzuki Superbike Shootout. Uh, and they're very excited, and we're excited that they're going to be there and helping us this way. We've got uh, billboards up all over town. Um, as well, so it's uh, as we go further through the, the year, you're going to see Honda put, uh, present the Honda Challenge. And it's going to be a three-race uh, challenge, and the winner uh, is going to get a new Honda car, which will be a lot of fun. But you know, I, I would I can't speak for Honda, but they're sure showing up in a big way, and I got to think that they see a real value in this, and, and you're going to see more and more of them hopefully on the racetrack at some point in time. Kawasaki, uh, you know, we, we've, we've been in discussions with them, but uh, we think that they're not far behind either. Yamaha has been one of the, the, and Suzuki both have been one of the underpinnings of the sport for a long time. Yamaha is going to be out there in a big way uh, at our New Jersey rounds, and uh, I think we have some surprises there on some of the things they're going to be doing. Uh, so there's something that's going to be kind of happening at every race uh, with the, with the original equipment manufacturer or we're going to be with World Superbike, or we're going to be with MotoGP. So those things, I think, are really going to add to the offering, and I think to the experience of the fans coming out. I mean, again, if if the fans have not been to a motorcycle race, road racing uh, is so exciting, and it's so on the edge. I mean, for all the X Games stuff, yeah, that's pretty cool, but, you know, you're still out there for an entire race and really getting after it, and it's just just without, without parallel, I think. Well, that's why I love it. Yeah. Oh, the other thing we have this year, too, that's going to be interesting, our qualifier, the Qs. We call them the Qs. We come up with the Super Bowl. There's going to be, I think, the qualifying tires offered to 10 riders, the top 10 riders at the Super Bowl. And you've got, uh, you'll be able to tell if they're on these, these tires or not because there'll be a, a big yellow uh, sidewall on the tire. So that, when a rider goes out on that, on that, uh, that tire, you're going to know it. And you get three laps on this thing. 
and you know it's interesting to watch them at the at the test. The first lap, the first part, you kind of got to get you got to drive some heat in the tire, and then you really have to grind it to the second part of the, the first lap. The second lap is all out. You got one hard lap on the tire, and the third lap is just getting it back home to the pits. Um, and you know there's a there's an element of of gamesmanship in this thing. There's uh, being able to trust the tire, uh, and it's going to be really exciting. I think bring another level to the to qualification process. You know, four or five riders go out there on tires, and they're they're qualifying at the same time that uh, you've got another group out there. They can get balked on a on a on a on a, on a qualifying run, so they think they're going to uh, nail it, and all of a sudden they get in traffic, and the tire's gone. So it's it's there's a there's a real element of a suspense to it. Sounds interesting. Kind of like drag racing. Just hit it and hit it hard for one lap. That's yeah, right. and then your tire's toast. <laughs> That's amazing, isn't it? I mean, you think about it. Think about all the trust you've got to do and give it a tire when you do this sort of thing, right? Yeah. You go out there and... and especially, especially a tire that's going to have a lot more stick than you've been kind of used to when, when you're running just your regular tires and you put a cue on, and then all of a sudden you're like, okay, I should be able to go that much deeper and get on the gas right. much sooner. It's all about faith at that point. Yeah, to fade it out that quickly. I mean, you have to have a lot of experience on a tire like that to know how it's going to work after one and a half laps and know where that traction limit is. Oh, hell, think about it. I mean, you know, it usually takes every bit of a lap to get heat in a tire, you know, right. like that. So now you're saying, that I do, not, do I do it the right way? Do I got, what, what can I do here? I mean, it, and you, first of all, you're on a cold tire going out. And you're trying to get it get it as hot as possible coming out of that, and now you got to rely on it, and lean on it. Man, that's that's just a lot of faith, a lot of commitment. Yeah. And then you don't know how it's going to act on this track. Right. Every track's different. Yep, absolutely. The age of the surface and effect on how that tire is going to perform. Velocity, everything. So I mean, so we're back to the rider being such a big piece of this, are we? Yeah, absolutely. And you forget, you know, and believe me, the electronics don't know what shoes you got on, right? So, yeah. <laughs> so you're out there on these things. Oh, I tell it's exciting. I, 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 I get excited talking about it, you can tell. But I, I oh, just, yeah. I'll be watching it. Yeah, I'm really excited to see the season and uh, and really what year two brings. So I think that's a good point to wrap it up. Pete, you, you good? Or you got any other questions? No, I'm, I'm good. Uh, I have to say you, you've reignited some passion on my part to follow this. The only thing I've been following the last couple of years is the 130cc class in the Asia Road Racing Championship on YouTube is about the, the only thing I've been following. So I'm uh, hopeful and encouraged for what you're trying to do because there's there's no sport like road racing. Yeah, well, Pete, Pete, if I can, if you, did, you mentioned that, I, so I'll challenge you to do one thing. Watch on the on the uh, Saturdays and Sundays. Watch the 390 Cup. Find a rider you like and follow them because it's a lot of fun. It's the families are out there. But I got to tell you the story about the first race we put out last year at Road America. It was raining, so these kids are out there on the on the grid. The rain's coming down. You know we've got like thirty riders out there, and they go out for their first siding lap. Hell, we lose two of them right off the bat. There was mm-hmm. the pole the pole center. He was on the ground. Now we brought him back in. Everyone's kind of tentative, so we said, "Let's go back out again, take another lap. Let's just take it easy." We lost three more. Okay, <laughs> get them up off the ground, bring them over there, get the bikes clean up, get it out, and finally get the thing started. And it was wild and woolly. Sounds horrible, but my favorite part was on the last lap, the rider running second took out the rider running third, and they were both over there leaning against the tires, crying. 
at the end of the day. They came up on the camera. But it was everything you want in terms of racing. And the small oh, yeah. displacement is so much fun. And it got to the point where the pack emptied out every time we, the 398 Cup ran. And everyone just loves that racing. It's, it's a good class for them to learn, make mistakes, run into each other, fall off the track. But, you know, all of those things are going to build future racers. Yeah. That's good. Well, hey, hey, Richard, we really appreciate the, the time you've given us here. And uh, really the best of luck uh, going forward in 2016. Thanks so much. And thanks, guys, for, for taking an interest in what we're doing. And, Absolutely. Uh, everybody out there, come on out and see us race. With, uh, we'd love to have you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, we'll see you next week. 